I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 28 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is renowned Nashville-based mastering engineer, Ryan Smith, who has worked on recent vinyl pressings for Adele and Taylor Swift, but more notably, has earned a reputation for mastering fantastic sounding reissues. As part of my vinyl buying kick of the past few years, I joined the Vinyl Me Please record club and became familiar with this phrase, AAA lacquers cut from the original analog tapes by Ryan Smith at Sterling Sound. VMP has given Smith's name increased prominence on its releases as more and more music lovers realize that his mastering of a recording, especially from original analog elements, means that it will have an audiophile level of quality. I now own many excellent Ryan Smith mastered albums, including last year's Introducing Aaron Frazier and such VMP releases as the Isley Brothers' Go For Your Guns, Al Green's Call Me, the immortal Otis Redding, Phoenix's Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, Graham Parsons' Grievous Angel, and coming soon, Lyle Lovett's Joshua Judges Ruth, and No Way by jazz guitarist Boogaloo Joe Jones. I don't even know that last album, but I'm willing to give it a shot because of who's involved. Ryan Smith is the third acclaimed mastering engineer to appear on Pop after Bernie Grunman and Kevin Gray. Smith got a later start than those two, moving to New York City in 1995 and eventually landing an assistant engineer's job at Right Track Recording. He worked on high-profile projects with big-name producers such as Phil Ramone and Arif Martin, but in 2002, he decided he'd rather do mastering than live recording. In this conversation, he explains why. Smith joined Sterling Sound in New York and learned his craft from the late George Marino, considered tops in the field. Digital formats still dominated in the early 2000s, but Smith became known for his vinyl mastering and lacquer cutting. And as the industry has swung back to vinyl, Smith has become increasingly in demand as a senior mastering engineer at the newer Sterling Sound facility in Nashville. He and I discuss the contrast between his work on big new releases and reissues and how he approaches each job. What distinguishes his mastering from that of his colleagues? How big a part of his job is Vinyl Me Please? Sometimes he prepares a VMP release that previously had been cut by another mastering engineer, such as John Prine's self-titled debut, which had a recent Kevin Gray version at the time. There's also a Speaker's Corner edition of the upcoming VMP release, Here is Phineas, by jazz pianist Phineas Newborn Jr. Does Smith listen to those other versions before he does his work? How long does Smith take to master an album? His answer is different from Gray's. Does he think black vinyl albums are inherently superior to colored vinyl ones? Which is more important, where the lacquers are cut or where the albums are pressed? What does he listen to at home? How does he protect his ears? We discuss all that and much more, and his enthusiasm and expertise shine through. You should love listening to him talk almost as much as listening to those albums he has mastered. Please enjoy Ryan Smith, on Carol Pop. Well, th- thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I've been I've been listening yeah. to so many of your 
your records lately that uh that i needed to talk to person behind them i joined that vinyl me please club right around the beginning of the the pandemic and uh so i get so many of these uh you know triple a from original analog tapes uh mass uh by ryan smith sterling sound played it at rti and all of that so um and they always they always sound fantastic how, how much of Oh, you're welcome. How how much of your work is for, you know, something like Vinyl Me Please versus for labels versus for individual artists? How does that break down? It's a it's a it's a little hard to quantify just because I feel like things sort of ebb and flow all the time and it's you know, uh but I would say maybe thirty percent of my work is like that reissue type stuff, like what I do for vinyl vinyl me please or um a few other uh, reissue labels who are doing like the AAA analog, you know, super deluxe like reissue type thing, um, and then you know the rest of it is, um, you know, I do a lot of, of vinyl cutting for the major labels, and then I've got a lot of just independent clients where I'm doing just digital mastering, uh, it, digital mastering for the for the for majors as well. But um, probably my work is a little more indie focused than. Um, than like some of the other guys here at Sterling, um, well, small labels, that sort of thing. I think what you started doing this in what, 2002, or maybe you were in New York in the nineties. Um, yeah. I imagine that, that it's, it's changed a lot, the business in term, and also just like the digital versus analog and all of that. Like, tell me about sort of the progression of like when you started and, you know, just how your work has changed over the years. Yeah. I moved to New York in 1995 and, uh, worked initially in recording studios, not in mastering. Um, I actually went to music school, so that's kind of how I sort of stumbled into <laughs> the what I'm doing now. Um, it was just like a, a regular, just uh, conservatory music program. I was a saxophone saxophone player. Um, yeah, I moved to New York. I actually I'd spent a semester in New York in college doing in, in, doing a couple internships, one at a music school and one at a recording studio. And I moved back and and was able to work some at that same studio. And um, yeah, so I spent probably I guess my first six or seven years uh, doing studio work, you know, recording and mixing uh, type stuff. Um, mostly as an assistant engineer, um, I kind of helped run one of the smaller studios I worked at. Um, eventually. Um, moved around through a few different studios and ended up at Right Track Recording in New York, which was um, one of the one of the big, uh, like you know, commercial, you know, multi studio facilities, um, you know, through the eighties and and nineties. Um, they're unf unfortunately gone now, <laughs> as many of the big studios in New York in, uh, in New York uh, have suffered similar fate. But um, when I was there, I you know, I got that's I got to work on. Uh, you know, a lot of kind of more high profile things. I got to work with a lot of kind of legendary producers, but as an assistant engineer. So that was, that was a, a really cool job I had early on. And then that was what actually led to my job at Sterling. Um, after a couple years doing the, you know, the kind of the big studio thing, it was being an assistant engineer in those jobs. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tough job. It's like a, it's a ton, a ton, a ton of hours and not very good pay. <laughs> it's definitely like, you know, what you would call a stepping stone job. You know, you're, you're paying your dues, that sort of thing. Um, and I got, I kind of reached a point with that job where I wasn't sure where I wanted to go next, but I knew I couldn't, you know, I couldn't maintain the 80 hour weeks and, you know, overnights and all that other kind of stuff that I was doing, you know, for about three years on end. And 
but I used to, when I could tag along to mastering sessions, um, for the you know recording and mixing projects I was working on. So like if you know if a project would finish up and they'd be going to mastering the next day, then you know maybe I'd be lucky enough to get a day off and so I would tag along. And that's that's how I first got in the door at Sterling and just kind of saw it. And um, you know, when I so then when I reached this point where um where I wanted to make a change, uh, you know, I just kinda asked around and, and got a connect there with uh with Ted Jensen, who's one of the uh He's been with Sterling for a long time, all, like since back in the '70s, and um, is one of the owners now. And he actually hired me as his assistant in 2002, and it's been mastering since then. So your original impulse was to be performing music and to be playing saxophone. Yeah. I'm assuming in jazz. Yeah, I was a jazz player. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I kind of realized early on that you know that probably wasn't go- where I was going to end up. You know, especially you know you move to New York and you see some of the guys who can play there and you're like, you know, you start doing the math of like, how many hours would I have to practice to be that good? And you realize that like all of the hours would still leave me short. So <laughs> um, I started looking for other things to, to stay involved in music. Um, you know, I, mean, I still love playing. I, I don't do it as much anymore as I used to, but um, so I, I want to say involved in music and um, you know, I had had that, I did, you know, was able to get an internship at a, a small recording studio and, and kind of fell in love with the technological side of stuff. And, um, you know, I, I do feel like being a, being a musician and being a player has, has helped me all along just being able to, you know, to talk to musicians is just, even if I can't, you know, perform to the same level they can just to be able to speak right. the same language as them. Um, I, I find it, I find it very invaluable. It's in, in, just in my approach to, um, how I do my job. Where did you grow up, by the way? I grew up a little, kind of like around the Midwest. I was born in Ohio. We lived in Detroit for a while, and then uh, Chicago. We moved to Chicago when I was about twelve. That's like where my my parents, my brother, and some other family are still. We're in Chicago. Uh, Since I'm in Evanston. I'm oh, oh wow! My brother lived. My brother lives in Evanston. <laughs> uh, I uh, grew up in Libertyville, up kind of far north suburbs. Right. Yeah, Lake County. Um, but yeah, my brother's in Evanston, and uh, my mom worked in Evanston actually, also. So, grown up. So, oh, cool. Yeah, I went to college. I went straight to New York after after college. So, I basically, it's kind of funny because you know, I'll tell people I'm from Chicago, but I actually, you know, I really kind of don't know Chicago that well because I grew up in the suburbs there, and you know, so I, I know, you know, I kind of think of myself as New- from New York as much as being from Chicago, just because I was in New York for. Um, for about 20, 22 years. So. Were you someone when you were growing up, did you listen to a lot of records or were you more interested in playing music at the time? I oh, know I listened a lot. I mean, I, yeah, I know I got interested in, you know, in, you know, having like a, a collection. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I kind of specialized in this vinyl thing, but actually when I was growing up, it was, I mainly had cassette tapes just because the age I'm at, it was like, it was the, it was sort of like, you know, the, the easy thing. The earliest things I had were, were records and I had like a little, like, uh, I don't know if it was Fisher Price, but that type of record player, kind of like little portable that I had um, when I was right. young. Close and play. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but when I was in, in grade school, I saved my money and I bought a boom box that had a cassette deck in it. And that was like eye opening for me. Cause I could, you know, tape things off the radio. Like I, you know, I remember like sitting like at like in the evening, like the, like the, the pop stations would have like, you know, their top five of the day or whatever. So you knew the hits would be played then. And you'd, I'd sit there like, you know, with the boom box and like press record at the right time. So then I'd have those. <laughs> so that's kind of like my, my earliest memory of it. Um, 
and uh but yes yeah, so I, I really kind of you know grew up in the cassette and then then migrated to cds and, and really didn't come to to vinyl till till later till really till i started in mastering and all that and all that so what was the first album that you uh obsessed over um the first album that i obsessed over um well let's see probably thriller I mean, I, I don't know if I obsessed mm. over the album so much as I, I definitely had like a bit of a Michael Jackson obsession around that time. I mean, it was obviously huge. There were a few records at the time. It, it's kind of funny for me to look back. I, I kind of guess I, I've always kind of had tastes all over the place. But you know, like the records I remember that were like there were the biggest to me. Like when I first got into music, were were Thriller and. Uh, Def Leppard, Pyromania, and John Cougar, American Fool, which are kind of all over the map there, but those are all like those are like the big three for me when I was like you know in like fourth or fifth grade. Yeah, that, that summed so, up a big chunk of the '80s right there on covering different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you just need like U2 or REM in there to cover the sort of you know more guitar-y side, and you're all set. Although, yeah, you know, yeah. the other two have them too. And, the, so and those are bands I definitely came to a bit later. <laughs> so. So, so you're in New York and you're working with, I, I think I'd read you were working with like Phil Ramone, Arif Martin, Russ Titleman, those guys. Yeah. When I worked at Right Track, I, I, I really got to work with some of the, you know, some kind of legendary producers like that. Um, yeah. Phil and uh, Arif Martin, Russ Titleman, you know, those guys came up making records kind of in an old school way. Right. And, um, and at the time I was working there, things were really sort of transitioning, um, you know, toward digital recording and all that stuff. And, right. and you know, pro tools. Like, I mean, I really, I really worked at, um, at right track in the era when things, you know, transitioned from analog tape to pro tools, like almost in that little three year span where everything I was working on when I started there was on, you know, two inch tape or maybe digital reel to reel tape. But then by the time I left, it was almost all pro to- tracking into pro tools. Um, but it was so it was really cool to work with these guys who you know who came up through it you know the the previous era and really you know made a lot of the records that you know I heard growing up as a kid and um, you know even though even though they were adapting and using new technology they still kind of had that um, that old school kind of approach to recording and um, yeah I, I feel fortunate to just have, to have seen that and. Um, you know, before the, before the complete digital transformation has, you know, happened. I mean, the, the digital thing is, is interesting and cool. And like, you know, the fact that people can record stuff anywhere and everywhere and, um, and, but it's kind of, you know, there aren't a lot of places that you can do that kind of recording left anymore. So I'm glad that I got to work at one, you know, before they started to, to be, to be more rare. Did you think of the time that you wanted to be you know, like a recording engineer where you're going to be the one setting up the mics and that sort of thing? Or did you think you wanted to also be working with the artists on like, this is the best way to arrange this or how to, or, or was it always kind of like, you know, it's, you know, I'm really drawn to sort of just the sound of it and making these like the most optimal recordings possible. Yeah. I kind of thought I would be a recording engineer, like recording slash mix engineer. I I definitely think I had, you know, I think that the technical side of things suits me and just, you know, um, and I enjoyed that that part of it. I enjoyed like you know experimenting with you know setting up microphones and placing instruments in the room and all that kind of stuff, um, and just you know, I mean, a live recording session is a pretty exciting thing. You know, when you got you know musicians sitting there and you know you're doing actual takes. That's you know it's 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 exciting stuff. So that was kind of where I started from. Um, 
but uh but like i said it was it was also like a pretty demanding job and like uh right it wasn't a great lifestyle job and um so i started thinking thinking for other you know looking for other ways that i could kind of use that same skill set but um but in a little more controlled environment um and mastering kind of suits that because uh yeah it just it's a little more of a it's the you know it's the end of the road for uh for the you know the the record making process and uh yeah the, I, I feel like i had making that move uh i had a little more control over over the whole process as opposed to being at, at the whim of other people so much so that was a that was nice for me. What was the highlight of those New York uh, years when you were in the studio and you're seeing someone you know, create something in the studio? I mean, I think any time we had, you know, we get to track a full band was 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 great. I'm trying to think of a couple instances we did. I remember working on a uh, Christian McBride, the bass player. His he did he brought his band in and we did that was a that was a really fun tracking session. Just incredible, incredible musicians. And just, um, it was a really, um, it was a lesson in like, you know, it's doing those recording sessions are, are funny. Cause you're on one hand, you're really trying to get the best sound possible. So you're, you know, you're getting things set up just right and all that. But at the same time, you know, there's a trick in that you, you got to make the musicians comfortable and allow them to perform well. And, and really that's gotta be, as, as much as you want to take your job super, super seriously and, and do the best job possible, that has to be, you know, has to come second after the musicians being able to perform well. Cause if you get a great sounding lousy performance, that's not really worth a whole lot. But if you get a, a you know, 90% sounding great performance, that's worth a lot more. So it was, th right. those were, they were kind of high pressure situations cause you're trying to get that, but you're also trying to stay out of the musician's way and, you know, make sure you get everything on tape. You know, the, the worst thing you can, um, you can, you know, you can have happen in recording studios. Like when the musicians say like, Hey, did you get that? And then you, you know, the engineer says, Oh yeah, we weren't rolling yet or something like that. So, it's, <laughs> so it's, um, you know, that was, that was exciting work. And the other thing we did a, a bunch at right track is we used to do, um, uh, Broadway, uh, cast albums where, I mean, those are really nuts. Cause you would record almost the entire thing in one or maybe two days. And you'd have like, you know, a whole pit orchestra and all the, all the singers come in and shuffle them in and out. So it was just like, you know, it was like kind of a, kind of a high wire act <laughs> trying to keep those, those sessions running. So I did, I did really enjoy that. And if, if there's one thing I, I miss about those days, it's, it's those like, you know, it's just those big tracking dates and, uh, yeah, there was a, there was definitely an excitement to doing that work. Have you met any of your musical heroes either in the tracking dates or later, you know, working on mastering? Keith Richards came into my studio, my mastering studio in New York once, so that was pretty that was pretty crazy, um, mm. and unexpectedly, <laughs> um, I was working with his producer Steve Jordan on cutting his record, his solo record. This was probably like four or five years ago, and um, the drummer. Steve Jordan, the drummer, yeah, yeah, who's also a producer, yeah. And I think he's, I think he's probably playing drums for the Stones these days, but um, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so he was producing 
Keith's record. And he came in, he, they had done the digital mastering with uh, Greg Calby and another engineer at Sterling. And then they came in to do the, the vinyl version with me. And I was just working with him and we were going to cut reference acetates and, uh, and send them to Keith. He, I think he has a, he was in Connecticut, living in Connecticut or he has a house in Connecticut. So we were just kind of there and, and it was sort of a, I mean, it was cool to be working on this stuff and all that and exciting, but it was also kind of a low key day. And, you know, there was no word that he was, that, you know, that Keith was going to come in and at one, at, you know, partway through the day, uh, Jordan was out just in our lounge. Like yeah, I was just in the studio working by myself and, um, I was partway through a side and I just turned around and my door opened and he just walked in like, was well, I was, was mid cut <laughs> and you know, it was like, you know, he was like, you know, he hears his music and he's like, starts dancing around the room a little bit and just, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I'm just like, you know, my jaws like on the floor. I'm like, I can't believe Keith Richards is in my room. Um, and, you know, we finished the side and like talked for like a couple minutes, not long at all. He had some other people with him, like I think his manager and uh, some some other people with him. Um, and then he wanted to hear the little bit of the next side. So we started cutting it. And, you know, of course, I'm cutting the records. So I can't like, you know, stop and, you know, gawk too much. I have to concentrate on what I'm doing. And uh, they kind of they went out back into the lounge. We were mid side. And, and so I stayed there and, you know, finished it up and when I was done, they were gone. <laughs> they were like, it's like they disappeared as fast. Like they're completely like, you know, like that was enough. He just kind of came in to check and see what was going on. But, uh, but yeah, that like, was, did I just dream that or yeah, it's, it's, it, it exactly had a dream quality. It was, it was that surreal. But anyway, that's probably my favorite, uh, my favorite in studio, you know, famous musical person type story. <laughs> so you've been at Sterling since 2002. So you're at your 20, 20 year anniversary this year. How often do musicians come in for the mastering and how much is just you sort of working, you know, on your own? Uh, these days it's mostly working on, on our own. And of course the pandemic has just, you know, made right. that even, even more so. But um, I'd say over the, over the years, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely shifted toward, you know, people to send us stuff. We do our work and, you know, either have phone conversations or email back and forth, to, you know, in terms of to talk about the work that's going to happen. Um, you know, a lot of that too is also the, you know, the internet making things, make it easier to move music back and forth means that our client base is, is spread a lot farther and wider. So, we, you know, we're not necessarily working with people who are local. So, you know, someone, I can work just as easily with someone in Australia as I can with someone here in Nashville. And so, uh, just because of that, it's, it's, it's fewer, but, um, I'm always happy to have people come in. I think it's, you know, it's, it's nice to have, uh, you know, that sort of immediate connection and also just to be able to, when I'm working on something and if I have any questions about if I'm headed in the right direction, just to be able to turn around and say, Hey, you know, what's the sound, how's the sound to you? And, um, to have that direct, uh, connection with the artist is nice, but, but yeah, these days it's, it's, uh, it's a, a lower percentage by far. Yeah. And you've worked on recent albums by Adele and Taylor Swift. Uh, how did, how did you end up on those? Like, did they request you and have they been involved in all and you know, like what they, you know, what those sound like and my role in those records is, is, is pretty much strictly to the vinyl cutting. So one of our, uh, another engineer who I work with here at Sterling, Randy Merrill has been doing the digital mastering on those. Um, right. What, what we found is that, you know, the, the, the vinyl resurgence has been interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've followed it. And, um, it feels like the, you know, um, 
people are starting to realize that the quality matters. At, at first, I think when, when, when vinyl started to gain popularity, people just wanted to get things out as fast as possible, you know, to try to jump on the bandwagon and, you know, there was obviously demand for it. But, um, the, especially in the, in the, in the sort of pop rock, you know, modern stuff world, um, you know, people didn't, a lot of the knowledge from a vinyl production from the past have been lost. So people were kind of relearning the whole thing. And now we've kind of got to a point where I think everyone realizes that the, you know, the quality is important and that people actually, they're not just buying it to have a souvenir. They're actually buying it to listen to it. So, um, yeah, so the majors, I think now are, especially with their big records, they're, you know, they're requesting, you know, people who they think they can trust to, to cut these records. And, um, so that's kind of how I've, I've come to, to be cutting you know some records like that um just because you know sterling is we've been i mean we've been cutting records since the 70s and have never stopped so um you know it's obviously less than it was uh you know 30 years ago but um but it's still you know a big part of our business and uh an, imp an important part of our business is something you know that we that we take a lot of pride in so yeah no i was on, on, on some online forum and it was talking about how there are different pressings, vinyl pressings of uh, Taylor Swift's folklore, and that you got to find the one with the RKS, which is the Ryan K. Smith, because, <laughs> because that was different from whatever other pressings existed. Yeah. If you say, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah. I do know sometimes, you know, you know, the, in order to get the number of records on the shelves that the labels need, sometimes they do need to spread, you know, either the cutting or the pressing around. So, um, I suppose that does create a situation where the, you know, there might be, uh, many iterations of the same record, you know, either, um, either from different plants or, you know, of course, you know, of course they're doing different color variants and all that kind of stuff, but also right. maybe it's been, been cut by different engineers as well. So, um, especially these, you know, the real big pop albums, it's like, it's, it's, hard for them to to get enough records pressed quickly enough if they just uh you know like 10 years ago we might be cut one set of lacquers for for a big project maybe or maybe two for something like like uh like artists of that you know popularity level um but nowadays we might cut you know five six seven eight sets of lacquers or even more um and then they're, they're being spread around to multiple plants around you know, so that they can meet distribution around the world, which is kind of more similar to, to what it would have been, you know, in, in the old days of vinyl, like where, you know, that would have been typical to, to cut multiple sets and send to different plants. Um, you know, when vinyl was the, right. was, the uh, was the primary format. Yeah. The Pittman pressing versus the Terre Haute pressing or whatever. Yeah, whatever. exactly. You see that in discogs all the time. It's that, it's that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> and it's like, and so you think about it, I mean, uh, you know, every lacquer cuts different. I mean, even if you're, you know, trying to recreate it exactly, it's like, you know, some go better than others and, and maybe in the pressing plant, some go better than others. So yeah, there can, there can be actually a decent amount of variation even within the same record. Do you find with this vinyl resurgence and, you know, just, all of these online communities that are digging into this, that people know who you are more now than say five years ago or something like that. Yeah, I, I think so. I guess it's kind of strange to me. I'm still kind of getting used to it. Like I know vinyl way, please usually like stickers, my name on a lot of the records that I cut and I get, you know, I guess they're doing that cause, <laughs> cause it means something to the people who are buying it, but it's, it's a little, it's a little weird to get used to. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that people care about it and 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 care about you know you know the the quality and hopefully I'm doing a good job and you know there's a handful of other guys who are you know kind of doing similar work that I'm doing and um 
I'm glad that people are, you know, concerned about the quality and are searching out good quality because that, you know, yeah, I think it's just good for vinyl in general. It's like if we if we have a bunch of, you know, not so great pressings out there that have just been kind of rushed to market, it's like it's not really going to do a lot for the format. And the, the, you know, the better quality we get across the board, it's like it's going to make people want to keep this going and not have it just, I mean, I think, you know, Six seven years ago, I I never thought that this would this resurgence would continue this strong as it has. So, um, but you know, and I think if we keep the keep the quality level of it up, I think people will continue to be interested. It's like if they start buying records that are you know that sound terrible, then they'll probably find other other places to put their focus. Are there identifiable characteristics? between you know like what you're doing versus you know like a mastering job by bernie grunman or kevin gray or bob ludwig or someone else i mean i don't know probably the people who listen to the records could probably answer that better (laughs) i mean i'm just i i you know when i do um i mean i assume you're kind of talking about like you know like remastering uh like the you know the sort of audiophile end of end of the spectrum um you know, when I'm doing those jobs, uh, you know, I'm hopefully hopefully working from a great source, and I'm trying to make sure I reference the original recording, and I'm just trying to you know shine the best light on it possible. Um, I don't necessarily think of myself as having like a, a particular style, and I don't really think of those other guys as having you know a, a particular style either. Um, I think that you know we're all just trying to you know you know just get the best. If you're going to do a record again, you might as well, you know, take your best swing at, you know, trying to make it sound the best it can. But, you know, at the same time, respecting um, what was done originally as well. So is your is your goal more to sort of recapture what that what it would have sounded like originally coming out of the speakers in the recording studio? Or is it to maybe make it sound in your mind the best it can sound, which wouldn't necessarily be exactly how it sounded originally? <laughs> you got to take both things into account. I mean, I think that j- just trying to... um completely like flatly recreate what was done originally is maybe not not the point of what what people are trying to do with some of these reissues i think that there's technological advances that have been that have happened that you know i think we're able to to approach cutting a little differently um it's also not it's not a um it's not like a competitive commercial format. So it doesn't have to go on the radio. It doesn't have to be, you know, like a lot of records from the sixties and seventies are cut really aggressively just because, you know, they wanted to be, they wanted to, you know, the cut through really strong on the radio and, you know, maybe it were even EQ'd as, as such. Um, and nowadays we don't have to worry about that so much. We can just, we can kind of, you know, just try to make it sound the best possible, but at the same time, you don't want to like completely reinvent the wheel. I mean, when, people reissue records it's usually records that people know well and love and all that and if, if you go too far in doing something completely new then it's like almost like you're 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 taking maybe a little more artistic license than you know than a mastering engineer should have um so i my, my feeling is just to listen to the uh master tape and listen to the original pressing and then try to figure out like you know what's what's a what's a really great presentation of this record um you know what that's going to make it sound familiar to people, but also maybe revealing or, you know, or just extra, you know, just super special. There, there's some records that you've done that had been released, you know, with other mastering jobs, uh, sort of in the recent uh, past, like uh, the John Prine self-titled debut album was Vinyl Me Please. Mm-hmm. And 
what, 2021? And then, but I think there was like a Kevin Gray cut of it that Rhino had put out of gear. Like, do you, when there are two versions like that that are kind of closely, you know, together, do you ever go back and listen to the other one and see what you did differently? Or is that just like, no, nah, you just, you get the tapes, you do your thing and um, really pay attention to the other So thing. sometimes if there's another reissue that already exists when I do the work, I might reference it while I'm, while I'm doing my work as well. Um, just as another point of, of information for myself, um, I'm probably not going to go search it out afterwards and, and, you know, uh, I mean, maybe, do big maybe, maybe, be, maybe it could be interesting, but, um, but uh, yeah, no, so sometimes I'll, if there have been other reissues, you know, especially if there, if there are, um, questions about sources or whatever, you know, might must want to hear to try to, you know, hear what was done previously also just sometimes i think it's helpful to hear the most recent version of something that was done um just because that might be if someone's you know um gone out and bought it recently what what did they what did they what did they get and what are they going to get from me and you know respectively so i might reference it while i'm doing the work but i probably you know i'm probably not going to go out and and uh shoot shoot myself out against somebody else after the fact well, like for instance like the john prine record did you listen to the kevin mm -hmm. gray version that had come out first and no i do i don't think i even knew that it that it was out or that it had been done at, at the time i you know i just you know vmp sent me an original uh copy of the record that i referenced to and um yeah, I, I, I was aware at this point that, that Kevin had done a version as well, but I have not heard it. So And yeah, they, and VMP also just announced uh, Here is Phineas, the Piano Artistry of Phineas Newborn Jr. And yeah. I know Spe Speaker's Corner has a version of that one as well. So do, did you go back to that and listen, or is it like, no, nah, I'm just doing my own thing? No, nah, uh, that, that one again, just from the, from the original issue. I mean, usually I guess I'm not like you're really checking other reissues. It, it, a lot of times it's be, it might be... The client who says oh you know can you check this too because we really like this i've had that a few times with um you know i've done some work for analog productions and um chad Cassum, the you know the president of, the, of there he'll sometimes send me some of the other reissues and say like oh yeah you know we're gonna do this as well and i really you know here's the original but i really like what so and so did on this as well so just you know if you can or maybe you'll say he didn't like it as much and just to try to veer me in a direction one way or the other um, you know, I'm making a lot of decisions my own on my own, but, um, I am still working for a client. So, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we're talking back and forth about like, you know, what sounds best. And, and, uh, so sometimes those reissues can be helpful in terms of like, you know, this is the direction we want to go or don't want to go. Some of the ones you do, it'll say it's your know, AAA from original analog tapes. Um, then there'll be other ones where it'll say AAA from tapes. Uh, and then there'll be some where it's like, it's plated at RTI, but but pressed somewhere else. Like, which of these which of these variables are important? And which ones are just sort of like that's ah, nice to know, but it doesn't really make that big a difference in the sound. All, all those stickers. I mean, that's like I guess that's just the marketing department. I mean, uh, like for VMP, for instance, we're always working from the best source that they can find available for the record companies, and you know, I think that's important because it's like you you know, and and. And we do get exhaustive with that. If we get something initially that we think is like, you know, there must, you know, we have a suspicion that there's something better. We'll go back and ask and have them look again. Just having the best source 
to start with, I think is probably the most important thing. And then, you know, people can make their own judgments about like, you know, who's the best plating house or who's the best pressing plant or whatever. Um, you know, I think all or almost all the um, pressing plants are capable of making good records. Some just maybe have a better track record than others and or, or do it more often. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure you follow all those forums too, and they and you know they're all keeping right. they're all keeping score over who's good and who's bad and whatever. And you know, um, that's part of, that's kind of part of the job that's a bit out of my control because you know I'm not the one you know paying for the pressing and all that and making the arrangements. So um, you know, I just hope that when it leaves my hands, it gets treated well. And um, yeah, like I said, I think all these plants are capable of making good records. So you know. I know as long as I, I send a good lacquer out, you know, it's got a fighting chance and I'll let the forums decide, you know, <laughs> <laughs> grade them out accordingly. Yeah, the, the classic coming up uh, is uh, No Way by Boogaloo Joe Jones. And it says, it's here on AAA 180 gram black audiophile vinyl plated at RTI and pressed at GZ with lacquers cut from the original master tapes by B Ryan Smith of uh, Sterling Sound. So you get so you got Sterling, you got RTI, you got GZ. People, you know, have their debates about GZ. Um, but, you know, as far as you know, I mean, it's going to sound really good because you get you got the original master tapes mm -hmm. and you're doing a triple A. I mean, I do. I mean, I like it when we can at least like when I personally can get my stuff uh, plated domestically just because lacquers do have a, a shelf life. And, you know, the longer they sit before they plate, um, they're going to lose uh, lose some detail and um, potentially have problems. So, um I like that VMP has found a way, you know, they think they're working with GZ because that's where they can get their records pressed on time and in right. the quantity that they need. Um, and so I'm glad that they have, they have found a way to, um, but to plate here in the States so that we can just get the lacquers to them faster. They've been using, I think, usually either RTI or, or Welcome to 79 here in Nashville, where, which is really convenient for me because we can have lacquers you know to the plating facility you know same day if you're working with like a, let's say a copy of the original master so it's a tape but it's not the original master tape versus a really good digital version of it is that going to make a big difference in the final product like do you prefer one to the other it's sort of dependent on how the how the transfer or the copy is being made um you know the the biggest factor if i'm not going to be if i'm not going to work from the actual original tape the biggest factor is how that tape got transferred um so um you know a well transferred tape into high res digital is probably going to sound better than a poorly transferred tape onto analog tape so um y you know that's kind of why i prefer to be able to work with mass with, with the actual tapes myself because then i control that initial playback of the master tape and just different things we can do um you know that playback is part of the mastering process so you know if it's if it's a copy and that's all we can get then so be it a lot of times i don't really have a lot of choice in terms of whether they're going to make an analog copy or a digital copy and um you know so i just hope that it's been transferred well that's really the the, the key there well, I, I, it's interesting because I was thinking back on you know what are the what are the VMP records that I think sound 
I mean, most of them sound really, really good. And what are the ones that sound especially kind of like popping out of the speakers? And I was thinking of uh, the Isley Brothers, Go For Your Guns. And I, and I looked it up and it's pressed a QRP, which is a good place, but it doesn't say anything about AAA on that one. And I'm like, wait a minute, I thought it would say AAA because it sounds so great. But I, So I don't know where it's sourced from, but it sounds good on my system. This has been a while since I cut that, but I'm, I'm 90% certain that was from Analog. I'm surprised they didn't sticker it. As, it's kind of funny how the, the stickering sometimes is like not really consistent, but you right. know, but uh, I was looking on the website just to double check it and I didn't see it, yeah. but uh, now, and then you're, but then when you're working with new stuff, which is still obviously a major part of your, your business, like mm-hmm. you got, you know, a Taylor Swift, you know, vinyl you're cutting or Adele or, you know, countless other, you know, indie, you know, labels and everything how like most of almost none of that is analog right i would assume that most of that has digital right. in the process yeah i mean most of that's like almost you know completely digital i mean there might be analog bits in the process but it's almost certainly been recorded digitally and mixed you know to a digital format and i'm cutting from a digital format yeah does that feel like it's a different job from the other stuff we were just talking about it sort of depends i mean if so, if something's been you know pre-mastered by another engineer and i'm just cutting it then then that's yeah that's definitely kind of a different job because then my job really is just to get it onto disc as faithfully as possible to what they what they did you know in the approved digital master um if i'm the digital mastering engineer myself that I've got a little more control over it. And I'll often make, um, I'll kind of split my mastering. Like, you know, I'll do a digital master, but then I'll do a separate vinyl master. That's has a lot in common with the digital master, but where I've made some adjustments, um, to do some things that I know will, will cut better and will sound better on disc than, you know, a lot of times a, a modern digital master doesn't, um, doesn't carry over to um to vinyl super well or there, there are certain things uh, that won't sound as good so and there are things that can kind of only be <clears throat> um only be tweaked effectively if they're done like in the mastering process not just at the disc cutting process so i'll so when i'm mastering um uh the full project i'll do a separate vinyl master you know to take some of that stuff into account kevin grade mentioned this too and i talked to him how like a lot of stuff from the 60s and 70s has been eq'd for radio play and sometimes you just don't want it to sound like that now so many people listen to music with like earbuds and airpods and that sort of thing and i don't know whether digital recordings are being mastered a lot of them for that kind of consumption um but does it sort of change the way you approach it based on kind of how people listen these days, or is it still a matter of like, I want the best sound out of a big set of speakers and you know, that's going to be the optimal. And then the other stuff will just be as it is. All the kind of like developments in digital recording and just digital music in general, like, you know, streaming services and all that is definitely affects just the kind of general sound of modern, like pop music. So, yeah, I think that that's just that's just informed like the way you know what people expect music to sound like now. So, I I hesitate to like you know when, when I say I, I I remaster for vinyl, I you know I, I try to still keep it in the same vein as as that digital master because that's probably what the artist has has approved with you know when we've done the mastering because um, that's you know as popular as vinyl is you know the streaming is still the thing that's going to get listened to more in you know in most cases so we usually start with a, an approved digital master and then when i move to vinyl i'm 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 just sort of trying to undo some things that might not translate well onto 
onto disk so that when it does come back off disk, it'll, it'll have more in common with the, with the thing that they're going to hear off streaming. Um, yeah, it's a little tricky sometimes to, to, to get those two things to match up. And, um, but at the same time, you know, just the whole, everything that happens in terms of vinyl playback is so different as well that it doesn't have to, doesn't necessarily have to be a perfect match. You know, by the time someone gets an actual press disc and puts it on their turntable with, you know, whatever cartridge they have and through whatever stereo, and they're probably not going to be listening to it on AirPods when they play the vinyl version, even though they might stream it on AirPods. Exactly. You know, so, I mean, so, so there's a little bit of leeway there in terms of it doesn't have to sound like, you know, exactly perfect, um, or exactly the same um, between the two versions, but uh, but it's but it, you also don't want it to be like, like just a completely different beast. You when, when people you know people when they decide to buy um, something on vinyl, they probably have already heard it digitally, so you, know, you want it to, to sound familiar to them. Um, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully we can make some adjustments on the vinyl and kind of make it a cool new experience and. Um, it's fun to listen to and, you know, maybe more fun than just sticking some buds in your ears. Right. Yeah. I mean, like 20 years ago when you started at Sterling, it would have all been CDs, I would imagine, at least mm-hmm. you know, yeah. except for the occasional vinyl. And now CDs are sort of like, I mean, are you, are you, do you still think in terms of CDs for digital or is digital really about streaming and CDs are, you know, just more of an afterthought? Because it's still the physical product of someone who's buying some, the digital music as opposed to the vinyl. Well, the digital mastering for CD versus streaming is not really a lot different. I mean, the delivery formats can be different, but in terms of the way it's treated is, is, is fairly similar. There might be a couple things you take into consideration for one format or the other, but it's not drastic. So yeah. So when I started, it was all, it was CD was pretty much everything. We mean, um, not many records in 2002 were being put out on vinyl at all. Um, save for like, you know, club music was kind of like the, the kind of DJ world is kind of one of the things that kept vinyl afloat in like the late nineties and early two thousands. Um, yeah. So it was all CD and now it's like, you know, we do, we do very little, you know, CD math. I mean, we deliver for CD very seldom, but we're, you know, but like I said, the, the, the digital master is probably the same for, for streaming and for that. So I think the biggest difference is that, um, with streaming is that singles and smaller, um, you know, like EP type things have become much more prevalent. You know, there's not right. the, the pressure on an artist to, to put out an album all the time. And a lot of times, especially new artists are putting out smaller chunks, um, and then putting them out more often. Because uh, I think people start realizing with streaming is you, you dump an album out on streaming and if it doesn't catch anyone's attention, then there's like, you know, 12 songs that, you know, kind of just kind of get lost in the, the digital ether. And, you know, where if you put out like, you know, two songs, two, three songs every, you know, three or four months, you can kind of, you know, keep the momentum up a lot. So we see a lot of, you know, a lot of smaller um, groupings of songs for digital. Um, so that's, that's sort of, a, that's, I would say one of the, the main differences that's, that's happened in, in the in the streaming world. What do you think of the CD as a format in general? Do you think that it's still in in for some for some music, you know, sort of an optimal you know format, or or do you think, yeah, let's you know, I'd rather listen to an old record than any CD at this point. I mean, I think CD has potential. It just, I think it's, um, yeah, I think with a lot of digital stuff, there's been there's things that you you can do digitally that. Um, that aren't necessarily ideal for 
how things sound if you're if you're thinking of it from a like more like purist audiophile standpoint. And um, I think you know I think CDs can sound really good, but um, I mean at this point I've got a ton of CDs, but I <laughs> I, I, I listen I listen to uh, my vinyl a lot more often. It's um, I don't know it's 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 more. There's something about vinyl that's more fun. <laughs> um, right. I you, know, I, you know, just, I, I mean, maybe it's the, the size of the, of the disc. Um, you know, when we first, when I really started getting into it at home, not, it, um, I started, you know, after coming from a CD and, you know, I said, I started with cassettes, but I really, you know, like through the nineties was, I, you know, was just a CD collector. I didn't have vinyl at that point. And when I transitioned into listening to vinyl, you know, for enjoy for at home and, and whatnot, I really started to appreciate like the the idea of two sides. I mean, it's just it's right like 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 a twenty minute plus or minus three or four minute side length is like it's a really perfect sort of amount of music to consume in one sitting, and then and then it kind of gives you this option of like. I'm like, okay, you can go flip the record over and listen to some more of this, or maybe you've had enough of this and we're going to move on to something else and listen to another side of another record. They used to drive me crazy in this, in this, you know, cause CDs had, you know, could, you could go up to like 80 minutes on a CD. And so just because you could, a lot of people did. So you'd end up with a lot of like, you know, over hour long CDs. And I, I remember just having so many where I would be like, man, I never listened to songs 14, 15 and 16. <laughs> Right. Cause I never get there. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm done by that point. So I, I, I really just, I think that the LPs are, are really, it, it just, it's, it all, all the proportions kind of work out really well, I think for, for people's attention spans and, and what you want to take in, in, in a given amount of time. Yeah. And there's something to be said for the 40 minute album as a unit of music. It's just like, it's just about the yeah, right amount. It really is. It really is. Yeah. So, yeah. So you grew up uh, with CDs. What was it that, that flipped the switch for you into, you know, from digital into analog and, you know, CDs into records. So, yeah. So I started working at, at Sterling in the early two thousands. And like I said, it was all digital at that point. And um, at first I was uh, working, assisting Ted Jensen. And then I eventually started assisting George Marino, who is another one of the kind of original Sterling engineers. And that was kind of a legendary guy, right? Yeah, very much so. Um, in the late aughts, we started to kind of get, the inkling that vinyl was going to have this bit of a comeback never would have guessed it would get to where it is here in 2022. But, and at that time we got a, a line on, at that point, Sterling was, we had, we we're down to one lathe. We just had, we had one guy cutting for us. And, you know, like I said, it was mostly like uh, club music, DJ, DJ type stuff. So around this time we, we, we kind of sensed, you know, the vinyl was going to, was sort of picking up. And so we, we got a line and bought a second lathe and, you know, George was into sort of the, the twilight of his career. And he, you know, hadn't, you know, he'd gr grown up and he'd been cutting records since 1968, but then hadn't been for about, you know, seven, eight years, um, just because there was the demand for it wasn't there. Um, so we got the lathe, we installed it in his studio, which I was sharing with him at the time. So he, so that, that's the point where he taught me how to cut as when we, we bought that second lathe. Yeah, so that's that's you know that's kind of when I started to kind of get into all of it. It was was at that point when when you know all of a sudden the studio that I was using had a lathe in the corner, and I was like, "Hey, you got to show me how to use that thing." And and so I was really fortunate to get to learn to cut from him. You know, someone who I mean, it was almost hard for him to teach me because it was so 
uh, ingrained for him and sort of this sort of automatic that like, you know, sort of like, you know, how do you explain to someone how to ride a bike? It's like, you can't really explain it. It's just sort of a feel thing. And I think, you know, cutting records is almost like that automatic for him. Uh, but he did teach me and, and, you know, and it's a big learning curve learning how to cut discs. So it definitely took a while, you know, like I always say, it's, it's really easy to cut a record, but it's really hard to cut a good record. <laughs> you, know, you can teach someone how to, someone with some technical skill can learn how to, you know, to operate the lathe and, you know, cut something in, you know, pr relatively short period of time, but to cut something that, you know, that sounds good and that takes into consideration all the, you know, the, the different aspects of the format, it takes, it takes a while. So what are the things that you're learning when you're learning how to cut, you know, a really great record? Well, you got to know the things that don't work on, or don't work well on vinyl. Um, so, you know, like sibilance is a big one um, and, and knowing how to, um, you know, like the S sound in people's vocals, but also sometimes like it can be really bright cymbals or some instrument, like a muted trumpet, things like that, that have that real kind of, you know, piercing high, high frequency content. Um, it just, if you just try to cut it as is a lot of times it, it'll, when it plays back, it just, it sounds really bad. <laughs> sounds distorted. Um, there's some, um, some issues with the low end in terms of um, the bass being in phase or out of phase so you have to learn about. And then you, you have to also learn like physically what a good cut disc looks like. So we have a microscope when we're done cutting and we can look at the groove that we've, that we've cut mm -hmm. on the lacquer disc and inspect it before we send it out. And there's all sorts of things that can happen. I mean, it's a, it's a really, I mean, when we say it's analog, it's analog. It's it's a real physical thing. It's you know, and um, you know, something as stupid as like a, a a bit of dust falling down the lacquer and getting dragged by the cutting stylus can you know can can ruin a cut or or give a cut problem. So we have to be you have to be on the lookout for all those sorts of things. Um, and then you know, so that's like sort of the the real technical stuff that that you learn early on. And then. I, there's this, there's a lot of trial and error with like with how you decide on what level to cut things at and the EQ you choose. We do a lot of test cutting, so a lot of times when I'm working on something, I'll I'll be listening and making adjustments, EQ and level and whatnot. Um, and I get to a point where I'm pretty sure I like it, and so then I'll do I'll I'll do a test cut. So I'll take a scrap lacquer or just a, a an extra lacquer and cut a bit of the music or maybe the whole program, and then listen to it back on and maybe even on a couple different turntables to see how it comes back. Because sometimes, um, I mean, music's kind of it's kind of weird how sometimes things that you think are going to be are just going to sound fine. And then you hear them back on disc and for whatever reason, the frequency content in them um, comes back sounding a little off or for one reason or another. So you have to go back to the drawing board a little bit. A lot of times I, I feel like finding sort of a sweet spot for the level that you cut things at, you know, in terms of like how loud it is in the disc, you know, if you get it too low, it's not, you know, it might, um, it might be, have, it might be cleaner, but it lacks like a little certain like excitement and magic. But then if you get it too loud, then it's will start to break up. So you got to kind of find that that's kind of sweet spot in the middle where it's um, where it kind of jumps off the disc, but it doesn't uh, doesn't jump too hard and, and break up. So yeah, there's there's right. a bunch of stuff like that, and and you know, the longer you do it. You, you can kind of anticipate that stuff faster from experience, but even then it's like, it's, I still, I still do quite a bit of test cutting just to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm certain that what comes back off the disc is going to be, um, 
what I intended and what and what the artist wanted and all that. I would imagine that you have to do your job. You have to have a lot of faith and confidence in your ears. And you're like, yeah, I'm hearing this the way I need to hear it. And, you know, you can't be second guessing yourself all the time because it just seems like you could drive yourself crazy and be like, well, which, which EQ is better? <laughs> this one or that yeah, one? Yeah, no, for sure. And then, and you know, for mastering engineers, our studios are, are, are super important for us. And, you know, like recording engineers, mixing engineers, maybe not so much mixing engineers, but, um, might move around to different studios a lot, you know, depending on the artists they're working with and, and the projects they're working on. Mastering engineers really don't do that. We, you know, we, we have our, our own rooms and we've got them dialed in and we, you know, you know, a big part of the job is just like listening and knowing your, 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 your setup really well and knowing what, you know, knowing what music that sounds good coming out of the speaker sounds like. I mean, that sounds kind of, basic but it's like it's really like um you really got to know that and then and then once you once you realize that that you've kind of learned that as in as in trusting it and you know and not second guessing like if it if it sounds wrong coming out of these speakers then something's wrong that's like i'm 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 confident of that and um so yeah so we do i mean another part of just of, of learning this job is just you know hours and hours of listening and you know you know all I've said this to people before. It's like you just kind of get to a point where you learn what a finished record sounds like, um, and you know, so you're you're sort of working to that end. Are you using equipment that was there when George Marino was cutting stuff? Are you using new equipment? Is it a combination of new and old? A combination. A lot of the stuff's the same as. Um, as what he had i've got a great technical department here at sterling that does like you know tinkered under the hood of a lot of a lot of our gear you know to you know to you know modify it a little bit um but yeah i mean yeah i mean some of the stuff i have is you know has been um with sterling for 30 plus years and then i also have some things that are new and some things that are are the techs have here at, have built uh, specifically for the room and, and for our cutting system, we 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 do spend a lot of time always thinking about ways we can upgrade and most and upgrade. We're not like necessarily looking for like a new EQ or something or a new compressor or something like that. We're looking more for like um, how we can you know improve the signal path you know at every stage and um, just so that so what we hear coming out of the speakers is really what ends up on the disc. You've you've done a bunch of these. Uh country music uh releases for vmp um Mm -hmm. and then the classics as well so the classics tend to be your kind of 50s 60s 70s you know blues jazz soul uh the country is country a lot of it has been sort of you know kind of 70s uh you know really great triple a uh of willie nelson's shotgun willie and that sort of thing the country stuff so far has been on and i really like the grand parsons grievous angel by the way the country stuff has been on colored vinyl the classics has been on 180 gram black vinyl do you think there's a difference in those two vinyls or is it really if you master it right it's going to sound great no matter what well i wouldn't say it's going <laughs> to that's that's a tricky question um colored vinyl can certainly sound great but um 
I mean, this is probably a better question for a pressing plant person, but my instinct is that um, every press operator knows how to run a black record. You know, all, all, all the PV, it's like, it's all PVC and it's all just, you know, pigments that they put into it, but the pigments change the way the plastic melts and the press and all that. And so I think different, you know, from what I understand, different colors and different, you know, sometimes if it's a swirl or a, you know, splatter, all those kind of things, it might take some more tinkering to get it to get it right in terms of like, you know, the temperature they operate the press and you know, the cycle times and all that other stuff. So, you know, I think you can make a good sounding colored vinyl, but, you know, but black is like kind of like a sure bet. And like I said, like everyone who runs a press knows how to press a black record. Cause that's like, you know, what records were <laughs> for, for years and right. years. I, I think I get nervous whenever it's like a multicolor situation, just cause it feels like, I mean, I know that, you know, the, the consumers like that, like that stuff. And it does look really cool, but I get nervous that it's going to, you know, that it's going to get noisy. Um, it's not going to affect like the, the sound sound of the record. It's really just whether it's going to be noisy or not. And, um, you know, the, I think the, the, the colored stuff can sometimes be trickier to press well. Yeah. When I was growing up, you know, occasionally you get a colored vinyl record. Like I have a yellow copies of like Asia and Royal Scam, Steely Dan, and I think a oh, pink cool. copy of uh, Animals. I think it was French pressing of Animals that I somehow found at some point. Yeah. But, you know, then but now it's like, you know, it's just these splatters and these patterns and, you know, and they're, you know, they're really pretty, you know, they look like peacock feathers sometimes, but, uh, but I'm always like, you know, am, am I better mm -hmm. off just getting, you know, I'm like, there's a reason those, those classic ones are just, you know, the sort of the more audiophile ones are black and 180 gram too. That's important too. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I think yeah, that the heavier, there's no reason it, 180 grams, not going to make the record sound better, but, um, you know, a well-pressed standard weight vinyl will sound just as good, but there's something about the, I think there's something about the 180 gram that like it just kind of feels more sturdy in your hand. I don't know. I, I think that, I think that some of that's solid. Only, yeah. Probably less likely to yeah. warp. Le yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think that's the case. How often do you get in the studio to, you know, master something and you play it and you get goosebumps. You're like, Oh my God oh my God, this sounds so amazing. You know, I need to really, you know, do my, not that you're not bringing your A game anyway, but this one is really special. It's like making me, you know, remember why I love music. Da, 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 da. I mean, yeah, it, it definitely happens fairly often. I mean, you know, it probably happens more often when it's, um, when it's music that I already know, you know, I, and one of the cool things about working for VMP has been, they, they choose a lot of sort of off the beaten path stuff. So a lot of times I'm working on, on things that I've not, that I didn't know before. And then I, you know, so I get to, you know, to learn and, and, and be introduced to new stuff. Um, but yeah, when you work on something that's like the, you know, that I already like, like I'll use like the, I've been doing a lot of these jazz reissues on the acoustic sound series for Universal, Verve, and so I can do a bunch of John Coltrane records, which are records that I knew really well. So, like, you know, when I got to cut uh, Love Supreme, you know, I mean, that was like, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like a right. record I freaked out over and obsessed over when I was in high school, and, um, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, a few others like that. A lot, a lot of those those jazz records, I was like, sometimes I had to kind of like pinch myself, being like, I can't believe that this is my job to you know to to handle these tapes that are you know so old and this music that I you know that I love so much and like like this 
reel of tape was in the room with those guys when they recorded it. You know, it's like all right. the you know, like they were at, you know, Rudy Van Gelder's studio or wherever it was recorded. And like, you know, they were there. It's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Is a new version of a, you know, a tape that's been around for decades. Uh, can you still make it sound better than the original or like, which, like, which has the advantage, like a pristine original of something or the modern technology applied to, you know, what's an older tape by this point? I mean, I hope that we can do something a little better just because the technology has improved. Um, but it's not always the case because sometimes, you know, the tapes have deteriorated or, yeah. And sometimes when things are done really great, the old stuff if it's done really, really well. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to beat. I think in a lot of cases we're able to reveal more that was on that was on the tape than they were able to just um you know lathes have gotten better the cutter heads the tape machine our tape machines are you know you know a little more advanced our signal path is is uh hopefully you know cleaner and you know all that sort of thing so hopefully we're able to get a little more uh detailed version on the disc but there are some that are old you know some old ones that are just like i mean they just had some kind of magic going and you know you're just hoping that you can get something that sounds as good have there been any that you've just been especially intimidated by where you're just like oh i you know i don't know how i'm gonna top what's already come out on this one nothing that really comes to mind i mean i definitely know that there's somewhere where i'll hear the original and i'll just be like i just need to make it sound like this because this sounds right and so i'm not like really like wouldn't say intimidated because I usually feel like I can at least get there. But like, if it if the original just sounds like just kind of perfect, then you know why would you? Wanna, you know, it's like all I want to do is like is just be like, well, let's just have it so that there's more of these records in the world available to people. Because you know, there's only right. especially when we deal with you know, a record from like the '60s or '70s. There's only so many of them left, and of those, there's only so many of them that aren't beat up. So you know, and it's nice when people can go, you know you know, to a record store or, you know, to the, buy something online that's new. And as opposed to like having to go on Discogs and spend like 150 bucks for an original pressing of something that may or may not come as graded by the Discog seller and all that. Um, you know, there's just, there's not a lot of those out there. I mean, so it's nice to be able to put, you know, fresh records into the world that sound great. And for the, for, um, for, for you know, some of this fantastic music that's, you know, been out of print, since you ever get uh, a recording to to master and you're just like i hate this too much i can't even do it and someone else needs to do this one i can't stand it <laughs> i don't know if i've ever gotten quite that far but i've definitely had the feeling of wanting to say that but i do feel <laughs> like i'm a professional and i have to you know if someone hires me to do a job and i've agreed to do it i should take it to completion um i've had situations where people maybe uh were me and the artist or the producer didn't see eye to eye on where things came out. And so I've bowed out on things before in that sense, but, but, uh, and yeah, you know, that's part of the, it's part of the nature of, of being a mastering engineer that you're going to work on some days you're going to work on things you love. And some days you're going to work on things that aren't, you know, to your liking so much. Um, I feel like I've got a, a fairly, uh, broad taste and I think that's helpful. Um, you know, I think part I mean, part of my job is sort of like, finding a way to like things, even if it's just for an afternoon, um, you know, just to try to like, you know, find, find the thing that you like in it so that you can, you know, so you can do the best job possible. Um, 
if you're if you're really hating on something it's really hard to do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> i think there would be sort of two things uh two factors like that one would be if you can't stand the music and the other one is if you think the the recording just came out wrong and it's just like it's badly produced or engineered or mud or whatever and you're like yeah, yeah. i mean you know i always say with mastering that mastering can run in two directions like either where you're you, you're handed something that sounds really good to begin with and you're just trying to like shine it in its best light you know enhance it a little bit um you know shine it up a little bit and then you're and then the other end of the spectrum is things that come in with problems and then your job is to try to save the day you know to try to like find something to make it sound you know at least like it's half decent when it comes out so i mean those jobs can kind of be interesting too because it's you know it, it becomes sort of a challenge of like you know how can i how can i make this at least listenable um it's frustrating though sometimes when you hear stuff that you where you like the music but you know maybe the recording or or you know, the the production up till it got to you you know is not you know it's not great and it, it's it can be frustrating to be like man this could have been really something but you know but yeah you just you do your best with it and and uh yeah just trying to make it sound as, as good as it can get. Do you have any that you would say, if someone said, oh, I want to hear like your best work or something like that, is there something that comes to mind that you would point to? One thing I always use like as sort of like, you know, like if people come in and want to hear something in my in my studio on, you know, my big fancy speakers and all that, um, there was a, a Paolo Nutini record that I did about five or six years ago that, um, that I often play for people just because I think that was, it's a modern production. So it's like kind of got like, you know, it sounds, you know, it's not like old school audiophile, but it's really well done. And, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't make us, you know, overdo it with the compression and all that. Like they do, like is often the case with, with modern stuff. And then for, for vinyl stuff, I mean, I am, I'm, I am pretty happy with some of, with some of these these jazz things that I've done recently, like the reissue stuff. Like I mentioned, Love Supreme before. Um, we did a version of Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth that I think came out really, really great. I mean, a, a lot of those, it's like I almost feel like like I'm cheating by taking a lot of credit for it because they're just great recordings, and it's like you know, I mean, I'm hopefully adding a little bit to it, but it's it's some of it. Sometimes it's just getting out of the way and and you know and getting it cut to disc as 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 best as possible so that you know what was the hard work that was done by those musicians and engineers originally can be can be heard properly how many records are you uh, mastering in a week or a day or whatever typically like you know an album a day is sort of standard you know sort of pace um but yeah like i said these days with uh, with a lot of um smaller configurations singles and all that so we're always kind of cobbling together the schedule so one day i might be doing a full album and the next day i might be doing a handful of singles or like you know two eps or something like that what do you do to protect your ears you know it's funny i stopped doing it since the pandemic because i wasn't going out at all <laughs> but for a while what i was doing is i had a, a little um i got like these like 30 dollar earplugs that are like you know they're they're not quite as nice as the ones that you get molded to your ears but they're like kind of in that vein so like they're supposed to like you know let the sound through relatively flat but reduced by a, a, a enough that uh you know that you protect yourself and i would just try to keep those in my pocket all the time so that if i you know if i ended up someplace loud i could pop them in <laughs> um and that was followed by years of like you know 
going out the shows in New York city and forgetting to do that. And then like ending up like, you know, wadding up, you know, paper towels in, in my, in, in my ears, like in the bathroom between sets or whatever to try. I used to, to do that, that with toilet paper. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So buy, I mean, you could actually I mean, buy your, your plugs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, 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 yeah, I was doing that for a long time, but you know, it, it works okay in terms of like, you know, blocking out the sound, but it, but it doesn't make going to the show very enjoyable. So yeah, I, I found, I found there's several, there's several companies that make these earplugs that, you know, they're about, yeah, about 30 bucks or something like that. And so they're not so expensive that if you lose them, you get mad. Cause I, I thought about getting, you know, you can get like molded ones that like, you know, that fit specifically to your ears, but they cost like, you know, three or 400 bucks. And I'm like, yeah, if I lose those, then I'm going to be really, be really mad. <laughs> so, um, and you know, I just, I don't, I don't go out to shows a lot. So that's probably, you know, as much as anything. I, you know, try not to listen too loud at home, try to keep my, my volume intact in this, you know, or in control in the studio. Um, you know, I talked about like knowing our, knowing the studio really well is like, part of that is like, for me, I've got like a, a mark on my volume knob where it sits all the time. So, it, you know, so that I'm always listening at the same volume and I know it's a safe volume. And, um, you know, even when sometimes when I, sometimes you get tired, you start, you start wanting to turn things up just because your ears are tired and it feels like, you know, um, you get the sense that things are quieter, but you know, kind of having that mark there just to know, like, yeah, if, if you want to turn things up, you're probably tired and you probably should just go home take a break. <laughs> Lately is like the, the, because I haven't been to as many shows going to like a movie, sometimes like the trailers and stuff, you're like, Whoa, maybe I should have brought my earplugs for this. But, uh, oh, yeah. but, but yeah, usually it would be the, you know, like the loud concert where you'd sort of stand close to the stage and you're like, yeah, I better put something in there. It hasn't been such an issue since the pandemic. It's like, I've, you know, I've been out to like, you know, two shows in the last three years. It feels like <laughs> how much of a difference does it make a difference for you that you're based in Nashville instead of like LA or New York? No, it, I guess, no, it definitely factors in. I mean, cause you're always, you know, there are, there are, are always people who want to, you know, to, to come into the studio. Like I said, it's been less in the last couple of years, but in general. So, I mean, I definitely do more work from Nashville now that we're here. Um, I don't feel like I've really lost work from New York for moving away from Nashville, but that's probably, that's just cause you know, of having built up clientele there, during the years that I was there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, I do more work with the Nashville community than I did in, in, when I was in New York, I suppose, you know, just us coming here and, you know, getting to know people, you know, word of mouth, uh, gets around and so you end up gaining some new clients. So that's been fun. It's Nashville's a great city and, you know, there's just an, an unbelievable amount of music going on here. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I've been really happy with the move. It's, it's kind of interesting because obviously there's, tons of music in new york but there's tons of everything in new york and so so music feels like even though there's a lot of it going on there it also feels like kind of a small slice of like the kind of business of the city in general and but in, in nashville there's you know a ton of music but it's it's one of the main you know uh the main industries here so it just feels like it's it's kind of cool living here because you feel like you run into people who are um who are in the music business everywhere in all facets of life and that, that that's been a really kind of cool thing that feels like there's a real like kind of community here where in, in new york it's a little more spread out and you know i mean new york's its own beast i still love it but you know 
Glad for glad for a new chapter of our life too. So thank you so much, uh, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed listening to your work. You know, when you come back up to Chicago, uh, let me know. Yeah, I will. Yeah, th- th- thanks for having me. I've actually I've listened to a couple of your episodes in the, the last couple of weeks, and it's it's a, it's a cool podcast. Oh, cool. I just, I just listened to part one of your Steve Albini interview on the weekend, and I'm I'm itching to listen to part two. That was that was a really cool one. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, part one. We I was actually in the studio, and then he had to sort of break. And uh, so part two was was done like this, and uh, so it was in, so, that, so that's why there were two parts of it. Um, but it was cool being in there. If you want to, you know, master some modern analog stuff, just you know, come get in a partnership with him. So yeah, yeah, I've I, I've I've done a couple things that he that he worked on, but not not a lot. I'd, I'd love to do more. I mean, it's, you know, I love the fact that he's still doing everything fully analog. It's it's pretty incredible and rare these days. Good talking to you, Ryan. That's it for episode 28 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Ryan Smith for his insights and excellent work. You can book mastering sessions with him at Sterling Sound in Nashville at sterling-sound.com. And look for his RKS and the dead wax of such final releases as Taylor Swift's Folklore and Adele's 30, as well as numerous jazz, soul, blues, rock, and country reissues, many from Vinyl Me Please. Thanks to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum, and Luke Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, whose work is forever sterling. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and at Carol Pop One. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. <laughs>